What's up everyone and welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now where we cover how the environment, our society, and corporate governance affects and are affected by our economy. I'm your host Mike DiCibato and this week we are going to talk about the Inflation Reduction Act that was passed by the U.S. Senate on August 7th. The bill is a climate, healthcare, and tax bill that touches on everything from drug prices to clean energy spending to establishing a corporate minimum tax. It's a massive piece of legislation, so we're going to both break it up into a couple of different episodes and really only talk about specific aspects of the bill in those episodes. This week, we are going to talk about the part of the bill that is called the Climate and Energy Security Provision. Thanks as always for joining us. Stay tuned. All right, the Inflation Reduction Act. This bill is 755 pages, and we don't have time to talk about it all on a 15-minute segment. So we're going to focus on one specific part of the bill today, the Climate and Energy Security Provision. The Climate and Energy Security Provision lays out a set of direct investments, most of them are in the form of tax credits, that hope to spur what is called the New American Energy System. The New American Energy System is itself roughly split into two parts, the low-carbon energy systems and the oil and gas industry. So for the climate portion of the act, the ultimate goal is to lower U.S. emissions and to spur investment and jobs in the process. The U.S. is one of the largest polluters in the world. Where we go, so will the global emissions. So first question is, what does this act do to our collective emissions that we put out each year? Well, the Princeton University Zero Lab looked into the assumptions that are in this act and found that it would reduce cumulative U.S. emissions by 42% by 2035 compared to 2005 levels. To compare that for scale, a net zero pathway, the thing we all talk about as the kind of best paradigm of cutting our emissions, would cut U.S. emissions by 50% by 2035 compared to 2005 levels. So 42% isn't 50%, but it's substantially materially better than the current pathway we were on. And then what the act does is that after 2035, it tries to reduce cumulative emissions through their programs by about 6.3 billion tons over the next decade. So the U.S. emitted around 5.6 billion metric tons of greenhouse gas emissions in 2021. So accounting for economic growth, a 6.3 billion metric ton reduction would be great. It means we would be on the path toward a zero absolute emissions future. Well, that all sounds great. But how are we actually going to do that? Well, the Inflation Reduction Act lists all the tax credits and the direct investments that the federal government is going to offer to transition our economy toward one that pollutes 42% less than it does now. And that's everything from the extension and modification of credit for electricity produced from certain renewable resources to an extension of the second generation biofuel incentives. The act is far reaching as I noted, and it touches on a lot of different industries. But for us, for ESG, for today, I wanted to know which might have the most immediate impact. So I asked my colleague, Matthew Lee, who covers the energy sector for us, and he told me. By the way, Matthew's audio changes throughout this episode due to microphone issues, so apologies for that. Uh, Anyway, here he is. Yeah, I'm keeping my eyes on two, Mike. So one is the investment 
tax credit and production tax credits around renewable energy. And then the others are these tax credits that, that would map directly to hard to abate sectors um, such as uh, aviation fuel, carbon capture and hydrogen. So the first bucket of tax credits that go towards renewable energy generation, I think it's pretty significant because in the past, these types of credits have only been with a time span of a few years. What Matthew is talking about there is the extension and modification of credit for electricity produced from certain renewable resources and the extension and modification of energy credit, both of which reference these tax credits that are called the production tax credit or the PTC and the investment tax credit or the ITC that until this act were these politically sensitive tax credits that were always needed to be renewed in these high stake debates on a one to two or three year cycle. For example, the last time they were renewed was early 2021. The time before that was 2019. And the renewal process was so fickle that the U.S. solar and wind industry had to deal with these booms and bust cycles that followed the tax credit's renewal prospects. This time around, the tax credit is being set uh, for an entire decade, uh, so a 10-year span, and that's unprecedented. So I think that will introduce a lot of certainty into, renew into the renewable energy market um, in the U.S. that has not been seen before in terms of regulatory certainty. And that just isn't for solar and wind facilities, biomass facilities, geothermal heat pump facilities. There are a lot of facilities that provide low carbon energy that rely on a tax credit because they need to be competitive in a market that is as established as the energy market. The provision also allows for any new technology that has proven low carbon aspects to take advantage of the credits that are available in this act in the future. And then there are the new tax credits for emerging technology that the act introduces. Uh, in terms of the variety of credits for harder to abate sectors, so the sustainable aviation fuel, the uh, hydrogen um, and the carbon capture uh, tax credits. So these tend to be a per unit of production credit that's being granted. Um, you know, this at the end of the day is helpful in trying to level out one of the biggest barriers to bringing these technologies uh, to market, which is the cost, uh, the marginal cost. And so even though we don't expect these um, tax credits to immediately uh, mean that somebody's making a lot of money off of uh, producing these solutions, uh, it very much helps to accelerate uh, and, and justify the business case, if you will, for some of the startups, um, some of the uh, companies that are venturing into these development of frontier technologies. As an example of that, take one of the biggest beneficiaries of this act when it comes to emerging technologies. The industry, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change says we need to be able to cut our emissions enough to avoid catastrophic climate change. The carbon capture and storage industry. The carbon capture and storage industry makes money in the metric tonnage of carbon that they are able to capture or remove from the atmosphere. And there are two main types of carbon capture systems that this bill looks to support. The first is industrial carbon capture. That is the capture of carbon emitted during a manufacturing process like making cement, which is then either injected into the ground or reused for projects such as enhanced oil recovery. Right now, a carbon capture company gets around 17 US dollars per ton of carbon that is captured and, for example, injected into the ground. The Inflation Reduction Act would increase that number to $85 US per ton.
And then facilities that capture carbon and reuse it, right now they get about $12 per ton of carbon that they capture and reuse. The act would push this number up to $60. The big winner though, are companies that have direct air capture facilities or facilities that can take carbon directly from the atmosphere no matter when it was released. These facilities currently get about $36 per ton of carbon that they take from the atmosphere. The act pushes that number up to $180 US per ton of carbon that is taken from the atmosphere. But I should note real quick, there's a social aspect to all these numbers because in order to get that 180, in order to get that 85, in order to get that $60 per ton rebate, these companies have to have certain labor rights in their contracts. For example, when they are building or constructing their facilities, they have to pay what's called prevailing wages. And during the first 12 years of operation at those facilities, they have to pay these prevailing wages. And then they also have to meet what's called the registered apprenticeship requirements in order to get the kind of rebates that I just talked about. So there's this social pillar within an environmental pillar in this act. But the entire low carbon industry, not just carbon capture and storage, not just emerging technologies, will likely see an influx of capital due to this bill. Going back to the Princeton Zero Lab estimates, they think that the Inflation Reduction Act could drive nearly 3.5 trillion US in cumulative capital investments in what I said was called the new American energy supply over the next decade. The greatest impact in their mind is investment in wind power and solar power, which they think is going to double to 321 billion US in 2030 versus 177 billion under the current US policy. That's a good amount. And say you were curious to find out which companies will benefit most from this capital influx. Well, according to Matthew, there are a couple of indicators that could be useful to help you figure that out. So for example, we might look at their patent data and research and development expenditures to assess how much um, capabilities they have in developing these frontier technologies and solutions. We might look at where is their external financing coming from? What is their merger and acquisition activity like? What sort of partnerships are they involved in uh, to get an idea of how good they are or how good they may be in scaling and growing um, to get to a, a critical capacity and get a uh, critical market share uh, within their space. For larger utilities, we might look at their capital expenditures and what distribution of those capital expenditures is going towards greener solutions. Uh, same thing for integrated oil and gas companies. Over time, are they allocating more capital expenditures towards renewables generation rather than exploration and production um, of conventional fossil fuels? The broader hypothesis behind that might be that a first mover advantage exists. If you already are, are well positioned in a certain space, when the benefits, subsidies, incentives come in, you can better take advantage of that compared to somebody that's trying to just enter that space. Then there are some parts of the act that are just trying to get a clean tech market going in the US because it's lagging so far behind in its ambitions. Take sustainable aviation fuels. The airline industry overall is behind in their climate goals. They're not cutting enough emissions to meet anything that they propose that they would like to meet in relation to, for example, the Paris Agreement. Delta and Lufthansa are the only airlines that have invested in a sustainable aviation fuel called biofuels. The Inflation Reduction Act 
would provide a new tax credit for the sale or mixture of sustainable aviation fuels, and that would be starting in 2023. The tax credit would be in the form of a per gallon tax credit that could get as high as $1.75 US. Now to tell you how much that is, at the moment, according to the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, alternative jet fuels, sustainable jet fuels, priced at about $3.38 to $5.63 per gallon of gasoline equivalent. Now compare that to conventional jet fuel, that's priced right now, or when the study was done, at $1.95. So there's a big difference there between conventional jet fuels and sustainable aviation jet fuels. So that $1.75 reduction in the price of sustainable aviation fuels could spur use of them, could spur investment in the industry, because not only is the use of sustainable aviation fuels down, but the production of sustainable aviation fuels is very down. So this act has credits that they're trying to use to spur investment and production. It also has credits and investments in hydrogen production and use, another emerging technology that many are leaning on to lower their absolute emissions. But quickly, I want to go back to that carbon capture and storage facility discussion because it's a good example to use for technologies that have been around for a while but haven't really lived up to their name. There was actually this massive carbon capture and storage project in Western Australia that is owned and operated by Chevron that has been meeting its goals that people have been reporting on this year. So I wanted to know from Matthew, is all the technology like carbon capture and storage missing just more investment or do they need something else in order to be viable? It's it's a price problem and it's a scale problem. So right now the amount of uh, operating direct air capture facilities is uh, significantly below, for example, what you would need to uh, on net, say, wash out like a coal plant directly. Like we don't have that many examples yet of a one-to-one replacement, if you will, um, of uh, being able to cancel out uh, the full footprint of a a fossil plant yet. Uh, We have maybe a I think you can count on on your fingers the number of operational projects right now. So the technology, you could you can say is is operational in the sense that it does exist and is uh, capturing air, um, but cost and scale are both not at where it needs to be to be uh, to put us on a net zero line pathway. And this is what this act is trying to do. They're trying to create more scale. They're trying to create more investment in industries that we need to address climate change, carbon capture and storage was probably not going to get to scale without either a carbon tax or this sort of investment by the federal government. So what the act can do is it can allow the industry to kind of gain its footing. And because of this, going back to the Princeton Zero Labs assumption, they think that the total volume of CO2 captured for transport and geological storage across the energy and other industries could reach 200 million tons per year by 2030 if the funding in this act goes as planned. Now that isn't close to the billions of tons of carbon that we emit each year, but it's going to help a lot and it will help make the carbon capture and storage market more viable. Yet making a market for low carbon energy comes at odds with the market for high carbon energy or the oil and gas industry. And here's where we get to the energy security part of this bill because the oil and gas sector isn't going away and this act has a carve out in it to try to help the industry that is currently facing a number of geopolitical headwinds. Issue the oil and gas industry has faced has been uh, the Russia-Ukraine war really affecting 
the amount of supply uh, that uh, glo- the global supply of oil and gas really causing disruptions there. So um, it lends itself as an opportunity if um, domestic production of oil and gas can be scaled up for uh, U.S. explorers and producers in in, in the industry. Um, the Inflation Reduction Act tries to address this uh, uh, directly um, by requiring the Interior Department to offer um, at least 2 million acres of public lands and 60 million acres of um, offshore waters for oil and gas companies to lease every year uh, for the next decade um, before they grant um, right-of-way to any utility-scale renewable projects on public lands. Uh, so essentially, this means that uh, we can expect things like the 80 million acre Gulf of Mexico lease sale um, earlier in January, uh, more of that type of uh, a leasing development to be uh, conducted. And, and for reference, uh, on average, the fossil fuel industry has purchased about a million acres of land um, every year since 2009. So to me, this means that um, this can uphold or uh protect, if you will, the current production levels that rely on um, U.S. exploration based in the U.S. Now, if you're a carbon conscious investor, before you get too nervous about that, remember in the beginning, I said that this act has the ability to lower our collective emissions by 42 percent by 2035. So does the carve out for oil and gas companies impact these possible emission reductions that can be achieved due to this bill? Well, according to Matthew, not really. Yeah, yeah. I, and I should mention that the bill also does raise some royalty rates uh, for operating in federal lands, uh, things like um, rental, uh, annual rental fees, uh, rental rates, um, uh, uh, non-refundable fees for expressing interest. But firms like Occidental Petroleum have already come out in their investor presentation to say that they don't think these additional costs on the margins will affect their ability to operate. Um, I think the key uh, question then is, yes, in the short term, this means that your U.S. uh, production, uh, your ability to produce oil and gas uh, in the U.S. isn't affected. But don't forget that the energy market uh, interacts beyond just fossil fuels, right? So as a result of this act, bringing online more uh, wind and uh, solar and other renewable technologies into the in, into the uh, broader energy market that might affect oil and gas prices overall. Um, and so, if that drives uh, prices down in the long term, that could still affect the outlook for oil and gas companies. Even though in the short term, this seems to shore up uh, their avil- ability to develop new projects. What will be interesting to look at is whether this act actually spurs new players to come into markets such as the carbon capture and storage market. And I'm thinking again here about the oil and gas industry because the oil and gas industry has the know-how regarding emissions, it has the teams that understand how to sequester carbon, and it even has processes that can use sequestered carbon to more to make their operations much more efficient. So they might actually move into the carbon capture and storage industry because of these higher profits that are available, and they also want to diversify and things like that. Now, this act is sprawling. We only talked about a very small portion of it. And next week or the week after, we're going to try and talk about some of the corporate tax implications, some of the carry tax implications, maybe some of the healthcare implications that this act also has in it. 
Um, but we'll see what we can kind of find as we look deeper and deeper into what this Inflation Reduction Act can do to the U.S. economy. And that's it for the week. I want to thank Matthew for discussing the news with an ESG twist. I want to thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Don't forget to rate and review us if you like what you heard. It really helps us get to more people and they can hear more about ESG. And don't forget to tune in to our next episodes on the Inflation Reduction Act. I will be off next week, so Bentley's going to lead you, but I'll talk to you very soon. Thanks again. The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc. subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research, LLC, a registered investment advisor, and the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to, nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.